<clears throat> there are two things that I want to thank you for already. One is the singing of that last song in particular. And the reason I say that is it was one of the songs that we sang in prison. And I wish that you could have joined us there because there is nothing like a bunch of wicked sinners who know that they have been saved by God's grace that they will sing like you don't sing in church. And that is no mar against you. It is beyond understanding of how men who have done the things that they have done could come into a grace that is unspeakable. And when they begin to worship and sing about it, I would invite my wife up here because she was with me every Sunday. And I would let her tell you what it was like, but it would take too long. Because she gets carried away describing to people what it was like being there. So I thank you for a familiar song sung behind the walls. I also want to thank Dean Tucker. I was in his Bible study class this morning. He preached my sermon. It was magnificent. It was, in fact, I went to him afterwards and uh, just tell, told him how much I appreciated it. He did a wonderful job. I, I just appreciated it very, very much. Indeed, uh, for those of you who are in the Bible study class, you'll see a few things. My sermon will be very different, but I do think he was reading it um, prior to the service. I don't know how he got my notes. Um, but I rejoiced in there. And at, at, actually, I got to tell you, at first, I did say, what is that man doing? <laughs> and then afterwards, I really did. I th I'm amen. And inside, um, Dean, I was amening you very, very much. And thank you for sharing God's words so well. I want to help you for the next time you will be served communion. And it's my desire this morning to take one small aspect of that. And I don't know that I will be sharing very many new things to you, but I bring it to you at least as a reminder so that when you come to the Lord's table, that there may be a greater appreciation and I hope a better understanding and a greater worship in this room while you partake. The Gospels 
of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Tells us of the night that Jesus replaced God's old covenant with a new covenant. You know that the bread represents his body. You know that the cup is his blood. For this morning, I want to highlight the comments given to us about the cup, about his blood. As I read several short passages to you, I want to see if you can spot a repeated theme in those verses. I want to begin with Matthew, and I will go through three of the Gospels, and then I'm going to take you to a very familiar passage that Paul gives to us regarding the same subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I will read a greater portion in Matthew so that you get the context. And then when I read the rest, I am going to simply read that portion regarding the cup. And I want to ask you if you see something that is repeated in every one of these verses I will then share with you. Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse number 26. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. You may want to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. And I will read 23 and 24. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You may want to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Verse number 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. Excuse me. This cup is poured out 
for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Luke adds the word new. You might want to go to 1 Corinthians 11. Now we'll read just verse 25. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Did you catch the common theme of what I'm wanting to pull out? In each of these texts that I've read, the theme about the cup, the blood, the cup in each of these places is linked to a covenant. And Luke and Paul refer to it as the new covenant. So I have a question. What is this new covenant that is tied so closely to the Lord's Supper? How are they related to each other? What is this new covenant? Can you tell it to someone? If you were asked, can you share it? It is referring to a new covenant. But I think it would help if we could then ask the question, if there is a new covenant, was there an old covenant? Indeed there was. And I think everybody in here would know that. Well, let's start by asking, what is the old covenant? What was the old covenant? It was an arrangement, it was an agreement that God made with the people of Israel during the days of Moses. And specifically, it was while they were at a mountain where there was an awesome display of God's might and His power. And the people feared Him. It began with lightning and thunder and it was so awesome they wanted to run away. But they saw that. Uh, we've done away with that today. Even in the church. God's not so powerful and mighty and awesome. We've replaced him in too many of our churches with a nice, nicer God. Now come back to that. That old covenant where God displayed himself in his glory and his majesty and his power was fairly simple. If I could reduce it to a very simple way, I would put it like this. I hope it's not too simple. If you keep my laws, 
I will bless you. If you do not, I will curse you. That's in a nutshell. God gives us more than just that. He goes over some of the ways that he will bless them. You keep my laws. And there are some wonderful passages where the promises that he makes to them, should they keep the law, there were many wonderful blessings that would be theirs. And in the keeping of the law, there was one thing. You had to keep all of them. A hundred percent. All the time. In a nutshell, that was an old covenant. The old covenant. Clearly giving out an, an outline of how God would bless if they kept the law. And what would happen. And you certainly, if you want more of that, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and just read through there. What would happen then if they did not? He had to remind them of it, by the way, a lot of times. He just kept forgetting some things. It just couldn't stick there. Even with those who saw the display of his grandeur, they walked away and immediately started breaking them. They had a very difficult time. So I guess we should ask the question, well, how did it work, that old covenant? And in one sense you would say, it didn't work very well. One of the covenant partners couldn't keep up to their side of the bargain, if I could put it that way. Israel could not keep the law. They broke them. They broke them all. They broke them all the time. So the Old Testament really is a record of Israel's failure. A failure in their obedience. They were disobedient over and over and over and over. And sacrifices had to be made every day. Thousands. No, tens of thousands. No, millions of animals were slaughtered because of their disobedience and their confession of sin that had to come. So the Old Testament teaches us a lesson. This old covenant, from it we learn that fallen humanity can never live up to the expectations of God. 
There is no way that we can please Him. We can't do it. They could not back then, and you and I cannot today. We continue to fall short. Sin has affected us so much that we can never live up to his standards. Even with his help. We cannot do it. In fact, as I have grown in my understanding of Scripture and our Lord, and indeed of myself, when I think of the depravity of man, I continue to see unfold in my understanding, I cannot please him to this day. I cannot even tell you if I am here speaking and wanting to bring the gospel to you out of pure motives. I don't trust myself even that much. Not anymore. Not what I understand of how that sin has affected me. It's not that I have come to Christ and now I'm okay. And now I do things because, well, I'm a new creature and I just do it. I don't trust my new creatureness on this earth. I evaluate what I do and I don't do so by saying, Lord, have I sinned there? No. You come every Sunday morning and you open this service to say, God, I have sinned. For you have. We stand as sinners before Him. I'm only becoming aware of how much in my latter years. The Ten Commandments and all of the other laws only make me aware. And, and that's, that's why several years, a few decades ago, there was a, I don't know what you'd call it, a movement in our country that wanted to get away from the reading of the Old Testament. Well, you don't need to read there. I remember hearing, Pastor, you don't need to go there. You don't need to go there? That's what Jesus used. He was quoting it all the time. And anything he would have said would have been scripture. But he spoke what has been spoken before in the scriptures. And the same to the apostles. You don't go there, run to that. Because in doing so, and as you begin to look seriously at it, you begin to come to the same conclusion. I am a sinner and I cannot live up. It points out who you are. It reveals it because it shows the holiness of God and the demands that that holiness expects and would expect of us for us to draw near to Him. We are helpless, hopeless. 
We cannot put the face on and come to church. I'm going to snitch all of you off today and say, none of you are righteous. It's only when you have been clothed in Christ. And if we could all see and know what you do, what you say, the motives of your heart, if you were honest, you would look and say, oh my, woe is me. And I say this and I bring it up because until you understand it, you will never love Jesus like you should. Because you will not understand what He did and why He did it. You will never know His love until that day you see what a creature you are, so fallen, yet He loved you. It will break your heart someday when that dawns on you. It wasn't a bad covenant, but its purpose was given to bring our awareness of sin. It condemns sin. It reveals sin. And I think it works very well. The old covenant did its job. You need to know it. And when you read that Old Testament, you will also say, I can't live up to this either. You won't say, oh, those Jews. You will say, oh, my. God ended up having to expel the children of Israel out of the land of promise. By the way, he also had to end up expelling Adam and Eve out of the garden. And that's nothing compared to one day when he is going to do another expelling. The grand expel is going to one day come. And all during that time of Israel's sin, God used men like Ezekiel and Joel and Jeremiah to announce, to declare, to proclaim. And by the way, that's part of what I enjoyed so much about the Bible study this morning. Our dear brother was proclaiming the gospel. He wasn't just sharing it with you. He couldn't hold back at times. He had to declare it, and he did. It's not to be shared. The gospel is far greater than something that is shared. I hope you get my drift. When it grips your heart and you see it, you understand it, you begin to get handles on it, you start to go, oh my! And you just don't go share it. The very thing of that gospel and its work as it is being revealed in you when it calls for that expression of proclamation, that becomes part of what begins to be the witness to the world. You don't sheepishly go around and say, could I, uh, can I share Jesus with you? It's Christ. 
And you can't hold him back as he desires to flow through you. So those men like Ezekiel and Joel and Jeremiah, they began to announce and proclaim and to declare that there would be a new covenant that would come. And 700 years after Jeremiah, roughly, Jesus uses his phrase. New covenant. And I want you to see what Jeremiah had to say this morning about that new covenant. And keep in mind, Jeremiah did not have it. His eyes were open and understanding was open to some of it. But you who are here today know more of it than Jeremiah. By far. He could only anticipate it. It has been placed within you. And what was that? Jeremiah 31 verses um, 31 to 34. Let me begin by reading. The wonderful passage. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. He didn't just share it with Jeremiah. (laughs) He had to declare it to Jeremiah. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. And here he says it again, declares the Lord. I'll stop there for a moment. And I just want to make mention that God even then, gives this image to us when he linked he in himself to Israel by, in the way of calling himself their husband. He wants us to catch something there. He's not a God that was changed from here to now. He desired intimacy with them. But he had a partner that was unfaithful and couldn't be faithful to him. It was like they broke their vows and they committed adultery and they went around other lovers. Other things became more important To them than God. So he. Said he's going to make. A different kind of covenant. And in that covenant. 
Jeremiah points out four different things in the new covenant. And I want to reiterate those for you. So let me begin reading in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I make with the house, will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it. Now we have a difference here. God tells us about this new covenant that is going to one day come and indeed has come. And he is saying in that first part of that verse, I am going to change their nature. I am going to deal with their hearts. I am not going to write it on cold stone. But I'm going to move to their hearts in this new covenant. And for me, this is a really a reference to something coming in the New Testament that is then called a new birth. A spiritually dead person comes alive with a new life. They are, as John puts it, they are born again. And the gospel will bring with it the grace of regeneration, of a new life, not something that is created by a natural power or a natural source. It is something that is all heaven that we do not have prior to this new birth. It is something that is given to us that creates something new. And it deals deep in the heart. The Holy Spirit brings a transformation of the nature of that person. That is part of this new covenant. Second, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, I don't know what you get from that verse, but I have a word that comes to me when I read that, and that this thing that is being spoken of is exclusive. I know that's not kind to say these days in this circle right here. You get it. But that is not a welcome truth within many of our churches. This is an exclusive relationship. It's not that everyone will be his people, but they will be his people. Who? Those who have entered into this Covenant. The covenant people. They. Them. They will be his people. Those brought 
by God's work within Christ, within the ark of Christ. Those who have been shielded from the wrath of God, them, those, not those outside, but those who have received that new nature that was just spoken of by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then fourth, verse 34, and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Well, So great is this covenant, this gospel, this light that is given to us. By virtue of the fact that you have been brought into this covenant, you are going to know and understand in a different way than what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was bringing the ability to know. Something happens because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you and I have the ability now to not just have a knowledge the word that is used and they will know me What's that word? In the Hebrew, it's the word yada. It's the same word back in Genesis where it says that Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. It's talking about intimacy and closeness. That was not the the way of the, of the Old Testament. You don't get the the father image in the Old Testament in that covenant relationship, that covenant was revealing sin. It showed it. It created. It was meant to create a hunger and a desire for God to do something. It's showing you as you are. Look into the mirror of it. And it's to bring you to the realization, oh, I need it. I need him. I need this change. I, I, I am short. I fall short. I am a sinner. I cannot stand before a holy God. And yet this new covenant now wants me to know him. In this new covenant, we know him. He knows us. And there is very much a husband-bride, husband-wife relationship. A different way than they had, than was made possible in the Old Testament. Deeper intimacy. Deeper relationship. 
because of his presence that dwells within. Because of the spirit who draws us together with the longing. I do not receive grace from reading his word, therefore I go to it. Well, I'm going to go and read this so that there is a greater desire, grace that's given. I go to this word to read it, to fall in love with him more as I would come to know him. It's not my duty to read this. It is my love relationship to know him more. I've been on vacation, so I don't have a coat. Couldn't fit it in. And we were going to the Great Lakes area. And really, the only reason we were going up there was because I had Southwest tickets that I was going to lose by the 24th of this month. And we just kind of said, well, we've never been up in that area. Let's go. And to my surprise, everybody else came. And I had no idea to even anticipate the brilliance of the colors. And it was just absolutely wonderful. It was, I mean, I, I drove with my wife and it was hundreds of miles going through Gorgeous scenery. I didn't look over at my wife and said, I hope I'm fulfilling the duty that I should be as your husband and being with you. And what was happening between she and I, we were enjoying each other's presence, looking at the grandeur and beauty of God being displayed in color. Oh, to wake up one day and run to his word for him. I will meet Jesus there. I will love him there. I will get to know him there. And I am I exhort you. Say it to him. Oh God, let me run to this word that I might come to know what your very covenant says is possible. That we can fall in love with each other. And you will not know that. You can play that. But you will not know that until you come to know him. To where you would become like Paul, where you begin to describe him and you just had, it just was, it seemed like was just going to mention something and all of a sudden he just kind of keeps on going, explaining him. He breaks all the rules and grammar to try to bring it out. God is love. His new covenant position with Christ. But how can this happen? How can a sinful person 
come into a covenant like this, there's a fourth promise. It's found in the latter part of 34. For I will forgive their iniquities and their sin I will remember no more. In the Old Testament, God is always bringing up... Have you noticed this? God is always bringing up their sin in their face. Ever, Ever noticed that? He sends a prophet to David. He sends prophets to the people. And what do they do? They blasted their sins before them. They do that all the time. In the new covenant, do you realize what you have that they did not? He is not going to shove it in your face. Oh, he may discipline you as a father would a son. But he does not take it and say, I'm going to rub your nose in this so that you never do this again. And when he says that he will forgive their sins and that he would not remember it, that used to be a problem for me a long time ago. I thought God knew everything. How can he not remember? It's not that he can't bring that up. He knows it all. It will never be brought to your charge when you are in this new covenant. It will not be remembered to you and set in your face. Not that he wouldn't have a right to It's not the covenant that he made. It's so grand. We must understand it. We must see what we have. We must not just take it for granted. We must understand what is going on. All of our sins will be put away and never to stand against us any longer. And folks, when that grasps your heart, there is a rest that comes. But I want to, I want to ask the question again. How can God do that? How does a holy and a just God do that? Because he cannot overlook sin. It's it's not in his nature. He cannot do that. How then can he let this take place?
He can't just give us a new nature just because He decides to. He cannot just give us that special relationship because He says, well, this is what I want. He can't bring us into an intimacy with Him because He decides, well, it's time. I'll just grab Him and hug Him close. How can a righteous God forgive sin? If all of this is given in the New Testament, the question is, how? And we are told by the lips of Jesus. When he said, about 700 years later, when he took the cup, And in Matthew 26, he says it this way. Drink. Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. His blood. It was shed for you and I. Intimacy is made possible not because he lowered his standards, but because his son lived up to all of those laws and all of the standards of God who lived a perfect life. Sinless, spotless. And he paid the price for our sins, as you were told in the Bible study class this morning. Jesus became the substitute for us. And it came through his death. And when Jesus was speaking to the Father in John 17. I want to share this and say two things to you. Don't worry, it won't be real short, but I'll get to it real quickly here. He says these words. These things Jesus spoke, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. Even as thou didst give him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they... What? Yada. Not in the Hebrew here, but they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work which you have given to me. It's because of the work that the Father gave to the Son that this new covenant is ours. He was about doing the business of of the Father. 
You remember when he was 12 and Mary and Joseph finally found him in the temple. What did he say to him? Even at 12, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Well, what was the father's business? Later on in life, he said, I do only the will of the Father. That's all he did. He did the will of the Father his whole life. No one else can say that. No other man or woman can say that. Then on the cross, he said, it is finished. What is finished? The work that was given to him. By the Father, He had accomplished it. What specifically is that work? I'll give you two words, and after saying what these two words mean, I'll close. This work that was finished, the work that glorifies the Father, what did He do? Two biblical terms. Well, one is biblical, the other he is borrowed from an outside source. Those two words describe his work. Propitiation and redemption. And as a believer, New Testament believer, New Covenant believer, you need to understand that. I think that the Old Testament believers could have understood some of it easier than we do. But you need to know it. So let me quickly look at them. Propitiation. The idea comes from the Old Testament religious um, sacrifices that were given. And it means to turn away the wrath of God. And we see God today as in much the same way I look at my grandson. We're here to visit Nate, by the way. Tim and Tanya, yeah, them too. But I learned from him that a grandfather is different. You change. It is different. And we have tried in recent years to domesticate God And to make him more lovable, safer, I think C.S. Lewis was right when he says he is not safe. And we try to then manipulate him. The people of the Old Testament, I think, understood differently. They saw those displays. They knew it. They saw his hand of judgment that would come on him. And a, a generation would wake up. But they also knew with his compassion, with his mercies, that he was not safe. And they were aware of their sins and knew he was a God of judgment. He was a God who judged and punished sin. And he does. And and the sin in your life, the sin that are there that perhaps no one else knows about. 
They affect you more than you realize and they affect your children more than you realize because you are a different person trying to live in light and darkness. You, you affect. When you try to keep one foot in the world and another foot, I know I need to be with God. It doesn't work like that. You're playing and you need to stop the play. And just if you can do nothing else, say these words to him. Oh God, make me real. I want the real thing and nothing else. And be ready for the ride he'll take you on. You remember Adam and Eve? I'll bring them up again. After they sinned. And before God came, they did two things. They did what? They made loincloths for themselves. That's, as we learned in the Bible study class this morning, man's works. We still try to do that in different ways. And then they hid themselves. Now, do you realize that they still hid themselves after they made their loincloths? So what they were doing wasn't working. And then God found them. And he pronounced judgment on them. He had to. He was just and they were sinners. But he did more. He promised at that time a redeemer. A redeemer would come from the woman. A seed from the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And God would pronounce the judgment, the ultimate judgment on evil. But God did more. And what I'm going to describe to you, siphon out what you don't like, but leave what you think is true. I wouldn't share it if I didn't see it like this and think I have enough reason behind it to say it. He takes one or two, I, thought, I think two animals and did in the front of Adam and Eve what has never been seen before since creation. He comes, he walks by their side and these two animals that were innocents and he slaughters them before them. Read the passage again. Yes, I'm putting some things in. I just don't see how else. We just had made it. We never stopped to pause there and say, well, what took place there? And in my mind, I see him taking and he is giving us the picture of his son and what's going to happen. In fact, it is Christ who is doing what will one day be done to him. And the lambs are slaughtered before the eyes of Adam and Eve, who quite possibly has never seen death before. And a substitute was made. And the wrath of God was placed on those substitutes. And then, still perhaps warm, their coverings, their skins, was placed on Adam and Eve. Am I going too far? I don't know. But it's what I see. And as I see it as Christ 
doing this, he is setting a picture of what will one day happen to him. But prior to that, the sin that they have, even in that old covenant, what happens day after day after day? The sins for individuals. The sins at Passover for the nation. Sins, whether it be for an individual, for a group, or whatever number was propitiated by the innocent one so that the wrath of God was dealt with and the sinner was declared righteous. The picture that God would have them go over and over until one day the real one came. The spotless lamb. The substitute for man and their sin took the slaughtering and the wrath was placed on him and paid for. For us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And secondly, the word redemption, and I close. Redemption was a business term, and a lot of times, and primarily I think was used in the selling of slaves, and it means to set free by paying a price or to purchase something by paying a price. And there's a story I just want to remind you of that illustrates what this is. And God put it in the hands and in the life of Hosea the prophet who God told to go marry a prostitute, you remember? And he does so to illustrate and to dramatize how Israel had left the love of God and went after other gods. And that horrible marriage illustrates the horrible relationship they had with God as a nation. And Hosea, who plays the part of God, and his wife plays the, plays the part of Israel, who constantly left and failed her husband. This difficult marriage was to let the people know how deeply the father has been wounded and hurt. And Hosea does this takes her and she becomes unfaithful to her husband and to her children and she goes deeper and deeper and deeper into vile sin. Her first man was rich. The second man was poor. And he used her. They both used her. And was done, slung her off. 
Until one day she found herself on the auction block being sold as a slave. And in those days, you could look at your merchandise because they stripped them before the sale so you could see what you were getting. And she was humiliated and put there. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go down to the auction today and I want you to buy your wife. And he does. And he bids for her and finally gets her for 15 shekels and a homer and a half of barley. And the auctioneer says, sold to Hosea, the prophet. And all of a sudden, the illustrated sermon was before the people. He had purchased his wife, who was a slave, and she was now his. He could do with her whatever he wished. But the words that catch me is, he says to her, you shall stay with me. There's more there, but you shall stay with me. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Who have been sold on the auction blocks of sin. Where we have been purchased by those who have said, I'll give you pleasures, I'll give you riches, I'll give you fame, I'll give you fortunes, I'll give you... And all of these other lovers, I'll make you feel good all the time. Until one day, Jesus Christ stepped up. The second Hosea, who loved us before we loved him, and says, I will buy them with my blood. The most precious of all things in all of the universe is blood. And the Father says, Sold. To Jesus. For the price of his blood. And we become his. And he says. You will live for me. And you will be faithful to me. That's redemption. Jesus did it all. Just like we learned in the Bible study class. He did it all. All to him I owe. And what should our response be? When you come to this cup. Worship him. Worship. The one who gave his blood for you who did it all. And on top of it, Hosea didn't say, or his wife didn't say, pick me. Hosea, I have decided to serve you. Adam and Eve didn't say it. 
They hid themselves. And I'm sure Hosea's wife that was on the auction block desired to hide herself too. But God, for whatever his reasons are, said to you, here's my blood. Partake. And I claim you as my own bride. Father, I thank you I thank you for the gift of your son, for the covenant that you've given to us, that gospel that we proclaim, so glorious it is, a sinner, saved by a righteous, holy Jesus Christ, who lived a sin, who was miraculously born of a virgin, who lived a sinless, spotless life, who died on a cross and shed his blood and who rose from the dead and who is now ascended into heaven and seated on the throne and will one day bring us close, will lead us as a shepherd before the throne of the Father and where the Father as the shepherd brings us unto him, will wipe every tear away. What a glorious truth. What a wonderful Savior. Hallelujah. And amen.